All right, why don't you turn to Hebrews chapter 12, please. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. And the message is entitled, Running to Win the Race. And at the end of the year, you kind of reflect back to see what God has done and how far you've come. And I don't know how many years you've been walking with God. But many people today have lost hope in life in many different ways. You can see by the despair of suicide, murder, the way people live and everything else. And it's not just, it's not old people. It's young people. Um, when I grew up, I mean, there was hope. I was hoping I was going to get a job and, and, and grow up and have a family and get a house and do different things. I had goals, everything else. I had a future before me. And today, many of the youth today have no hope. And it's become into a very despairing situation. But we as Christians, we have a living hope, a blessed hope, a good hope, a sure and steadfast hope, and a better hope than anybody else. Because our hope is not in this world, but in Jesus Christ. And though God may allow certain things to take place, and though we may live in a time that we really would rather have chosen a different one, this is the time that God has allowed us to be alive. And it's our time as a Christian community to be that light and that salt as every generation has, even as Paul lived in a very horrible time, yet he was an incredible light. And so the hope in the believer is in Christ and no one else. And the topic here in, in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 3, is um, the author here of Hebrews returning back to the introduction there at, at the end of chapter 10, verse 30. 6 through 39, he's been speaking about just uh, the suffering and all that's going on. It's all tied in. The chapter division is a little bit unfortunate. These verses are the climax, really, of the previous section that goes from chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to 12, 3. And um, Jesus is the source of our hope um, for all things, for all times. And if you walk with God for any amount of years, you know that it has nothing to do with feelings or emotions. Sometimes, man, you're going through the worst thing. But after you go through that tunnel, you get to the other side, you would never change that experience because it made you more like Jesus and less like you. And that's what God does. Sometimes we bring things in upon ourselves. Sometimes other people bring things upon us. Sometimes God gives us some stuff. Sometimes God allows some other stuff. And he works it all for his glory if we abide in him and we keep running that race. And really, this is what it's all about. The author of the Hebrews here, um, he's speaking to Hebrew believers who um, were not doing too very good job. Thus, many of them were going back to the law, and he has rebuked them and exhorted them and everything else, and given them very severe warnings of what happens if you go back. And so he goes on to tell them how to run the race to win, which would result in giving them hope. When you run, you run to win. You don't just run to get exercise, Okay. When you get into a race, you're there to win. And so here, Hebrews um, 12, 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The ultimate example is Jesus Christ. All that he went through. If you look at the, the hall of faith here, of all the men and women of past, 
And, and, and the top model is Jesus Christ. And so let me give you three things that will give us hope here that he addresses. First, the believer is to make proper preparation for the race. That's first one. Proper preparations. Secondly, in verse 2, the believer is to mark the proper focal point to finish that race. Verse 2. And then thirdly, the believer is to make a proper assessment of his sufferings in the race. And that's verse 3. And by the way, he's speaking to every Christian. Every Christian goes through things. I know some of you think that you're the only one. You're not. That's your own deception and Satan's deception. <laughs> if you would talk with other people, you find out some people have it ten times worse than you do sometimes. And that's why God has us in community, so you can pray for one another, so you can encourage one another. That's why the body of Jesus Christ. So let's begin here with the believers to make preparations, proper preparation for the race. Not just preparation, but proper ones. Look at verse 1. The believer is to learn from the past heroes of faith. This is the first thing. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so since these Hebrew Christians, and they are Christians, were surrounded by the witness of all these men and women of faith who had endured the witness to the ability of the faith they had lived in. So these men who have died, these women who have suffered many things, they are a witness to them that whatever they're going through, they're able to get through it. They're the encouragement. The word therefore is a concluding word, as you know. It's based on all that proceeds behind it. It's tied together from chapter 11, especially verse 39 and 40. And the plural we, he includes himself. Therefore, we too on our part. It's emphatic. So he doesn't exclude himself. And that's important when we talk to each other as Christians. You know, is it, no one has it easier than somebody else or no one's distinct and different from another one. But we all have our part just like the members of the body of Christ. And the Hebrews are confronted with their immediate obligation, you'll notice, to change their attitude and action to a life of faith by the example of the other's self-discipline and obedience to truth. So as they're lagging, they're to get their eyes on these witnesses, the ultimate witness we'll see is Jesus Christ, that they might have hope and encouragement. You as a parent do that with your child. You encourage them. You show them. You give them counsel. You say, I, you know, I used to go through things like that. You know, that happened to me, this and that. And, and encourage your son, your daughter. The amphitheater imagery here is emphatic. So great a cloud of witness, but we should not think of them as onlookers. Sometimes you hear sermons like that. The great cloud of witness, they're looking upon you. That's not what it's talking about. The text doesn't teach this. The word witness there is the same as martyr. But in this context, it means they are the proof or evidence of the life of faith. It is what we see in them, not what they see in us. We're looking to them, their example. Okay, I've heard many sermons that they're looking down upon us and seeing how you look. It's not what it's talking about. Completely out of context. So these men and women of faith gave evidence of hope and participation, not as spectators, but participants. See, that's the problem with too many Christians, that they're sitting on the sidelines. You know, it's like football. You know, you've got thousands of people that need desperate exercise. You've got a dozen people up there that can need some rest. The whole body is supposed to be involved, supposed to be part of it. Now, notice the believer is to learn to put off anything that slows him down. Listen to the words. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. The Hebrew Christians were called to lay aside every weight. 
to be like the heroes of faith in preparation for the race. If you're going to run a race, you don't put on a whole bunch of weights on you. You don't go get combat boots. <laughs> you don't tie yourself to a pole. All of that hinders you. This is a practical perspective here. The word weight is, is excess body stuff. Things that are going to hinder me, hinder you. The metaphor, again, is that of a race, so it is dealing with the believer to put off anything that would encumber him or her. That weight that would just slow or drag him down and impede him from running that race or even desiring to run the race. As you know, these runners, these, these athletes, they ran naked. They wanted nothing on them. And you know, if you've ever ran, you know, you get the lightest shoes, you get the lightest little pants, everything. You, you, you don't want no weight on you. You don't want nothing dragging, you want nothing baggy, you want something clinging so the wind just goes by you. So you do everything to get that edge. Now, in a race, you're winning, you're, you're competing against each other. This race, you're not competing against each other. You're not running against each other. You're running your own race. And God has set that course to show you what you're made of. This course will show you your weaknesses, your strengths, and your dependency on Jesus Christ. So we don't compete against one another. Though the metaphor here is of a race. This is an imperative command. Let us lay aside. And it's an obedient, voluntary submission. The idea is once for all, again, implying the ability to do so. God never commands us to do anything that he doesn't uh, equip us for. He told the, the man with the crippled arm, stretch out your arm. Now, the man with the, stretch arm, with the crippled arm could have said, well, you know, what are you mocking me? You know, I can't do it. You know, or he could have just obeyed and stretched it out, which he did. So when God commands us something, that means he's enabled me to do it. So a Christian can never say, I cannot. A Christian can only say, I, I will not. Literally, that's what we have to say. And so the Hebrew Christians here were called to lay aside uh, the sin notice so easily ensnaring them. This is personal perspective. First it was practical, now it's personal. The phrase easily ensnare means readily and cleverly or clinging close to us that which, which we are clinging to, be it of temperament, weakness, or environment. What is that thing that weighs you down? What is that thing that causes you to be discouraged? What is that thing that causes you to get your eyes off Christ? That's what he's talking about. This word again appears only this one time in the New Testament. The sin that keeps stumbling me and keeping me from running well. I know what that is. And I'm not to cater to it. I'm to do away with it. Some believe the context of the sin is unbelief. With these Hebrew Christians, and the context certainly is that, but it's not limited to that. But it's whatever it would be. For one person is one thing, for another thing is another. Somebody tells you their weaknesses, that's nothing. Because for you it's nothing. But to them, it's a weight. But we must make a distinction between that which God has allowed us to be weakened, that we might be strong depending on Him, and that which I bring upon myself, which not only slows me down, but destroys me. So that's self-destruction. That's self-defeated. I must make that distinction. Now the believer, notice, is to learn to run with diligence. Still in one. And let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us. So the Hebrew Christians were called to run the endurance uh, of the race. This is a passionate perspective. This, again, is an imperative command. The putting away of the sin is an act 
the errors, having laid aside that weight and sin, let us keep on running continuously. So it's an ongoing thing that we do. The continuous running is accompanied with endurance. And if you know anything about running, it's that endurance, that stamina. Endurance means steadfastness, constancy, sustaining perseverance. The race these Hebrew Christians were to consider encompasses their entire lives. It's not a, a sprint, it's a marathon. The responsibility of the Hebrew believers was to run diligently this way of faith with stamina. If you've ever been an athlete, you know that talent is not good enough. You have to build endurance, stamina. You have to be able to endure lengths of time, whether it be running, whether it be anything else. It's the length of time that you're doing that same thing over and over and over again so you don't get tired, so you have go energy over and over again. This is what it's talking about in the spirit. So these Hebrew Christians were to run this race of them uh, that has been assigned to them. So God has made this custom course for you, and Paul tells us that in Philippians. In this custom course, um, no one can run but you. In that custom course that God has made for you, will show you exactly what you're in need of, where you need strength, where you need help, and it's all going to point you back to Jesus. Because he knows what's best for you and for myself. And so the excuse or the course of, of personal custom made here is set before us by the phrase right there. The idea is a certain kind of race that stretches before the runner's eyes. This is the one for me. And how often if we don't realize that God is sufficient, we say, why me? I got a better question. Why not you? Does God owe me something? Am I someone special? And yet I know what he allows and what he does, he does because he loves me and he wants to make me more like him and less like me. And so I must understand the goal. The goal is always to make me less like me and make me more like Jesus. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease all the time. And so the race um, course here would not be easy. So no one's talking about being easy. He's laying on the line. It's a very grueling course. You can't do it on your own. You have to depend on the Spirit of God. You've got to depend on the Word of God, on the Lord. And so these Hebrew Christians would have to run continuously persevering with all diligence against all the obstacles, all the tests, all the temptations, all the hindrances, the persecution, even unto death, as the example of all these men and women of faith. The word race, agon, is an athletic term that means we get our word agonized from it. And he uses many metaphors of athletic terms here in the book. And Paul uses them all often in his epistles in order to run with patience. You know, when I competed in gymnastics, I had um, to warm up um, before and everything. And I had a, 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 a warm-up suit and I warm up and all that. But when I competed, I took it off. Because I didn't want it to cling to me or to hinder me. To warm up is good. But when I was ready to compete, I took that warm-off suit off. So nothing would hinder me from competing. And this is what he's talking about. It is very important to look at godly examples who are running the race. Um, uh, Hebrews 11. And then God has given us many things. You have good biographies of men of faith and women in the past. 
great missionaries. You have Moody, you have Finney, you have Wesley, Livingston, many different ones. You know what I mean? Um, you have um, the Jesus Freak book that gives you of all the catalog of men and women who have suffered for Christ since Rome to the present day. Uh, even to just this present uh, day that we're living in, in Iran, people that are suffering for, for their faith. And um, they serve as a model. And, and then you hang out with people who love the Lord so they can stretch you in your faith and you can see how they trust the Lord. And that encourages you. The best thing that, God, that Satan wants to do is to isolate you. You know, you've got to be consistent in your fellowship. Wisdom to run the race is to be self-disciplined and, and um, discard all those things that weigh you down. That's the conscious decisions that we make. Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-four to 27 that he gives himself a black eye to keep his body under. So my body doesn't rule me anymore. It used to. Now I'm spirit uppermost. My body is the temple of God. And so now I depend on the spirit of God and the word of God and on him to be able to enable me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. So it's the crucified life. When you were taken to the cross, you didn't say, I'll see you next weekend. You weren't coming back. That's the instrument that Jesus uses. Sometimes we want to be Christians on the weekend. That, that just doesn't get it. Anything that impedes me and encumbers me has to go. So we must be watchful as we run to lay aside the sin that readily cleaves to us and hinders us and trips us up. So the believer is to make proper preparations for the race. No one can do that for you but you. People can be there and encourage you to pray for you. But you are the one that has to do that. Look into the Lord. Notice, secondly, the believer is to mark the proper focal point to finish the race in verse 2. The believer's eyes are to be on Jesus at all times. Looking at the Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus has and does use people to encourage us in hope. But he is the primary source of our hope, no one else. The word looking means to turn one's eyes away from other things and unto him, Jesus. Sometimes we get our eyes on people and then they fall and we get all stumbled. Well, why? That person didn't die for you. Jesus is the one that died for you. We should look up to people. We should thank God for people that are uh, an example to us. But if they fall... They didn't die for you. Jesus did. So he's the one that you have to keep your eyes on. The distractions and obstacles are many. Sometimes normal, sometimes attacks of the enemy, sometimes your own flesh. And you've got to deal with them accordingly. Jesus is the one who gives all the direction, the guidance. And uh, he's the one that changes the plans. Sometimes he throws us a curb. Sometimes we think he's leading us this way and he has another thing. Or sometimes our life is going right and all of a sudden there's a curb thrown. So well, what's going on now? Think of Jeremiah, the things he had to go through. Isaiah. Daniel. And your God was in it. It is through him that God speaks. No one else. Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. 
He spoke to the fathers in the times past through the fathers. In these last days, he's spoken through his dear son. No one else. He doesn't speak through Mary. He doesn't speak through Peter. He doesn't speak through the Pope. He doesn't speak through Allah. He doesn't speak through Krishna. He speaks through Jesus Christ. That's it. He is the only one. And so he is eternal God. The one who died for us and cleansed us from our sin. Dependency on Jesus is the life of the new man. Running the race. In that stadium, focusing his eyes on Jesus, not on the crowd. Too many Christians are looking for the applause. They want to be famous like the world. The less people know about me, the better off I am. (laughs) You keep your eyes on Jesus so you don't get distracted. He's better than the prophets, the angels, the first Adam, Moses, Joshua, Aaron. He's just playing better. You want to, the book of Hebrews, does that be a good word? Better. This is a book of better. Jesus is better than anyone else. No one else. So Jesus is the author, the finisher of our faith. And the word author, again, there is, uh, is the ark or the first, the leading one. Jesus is the chief leader, the pioneer, the architect, the originator of our faith. No one else. He, he gives us the incentive, he gives us the motivation, he gives us the ability, he gives us everything that moves us. You stop and think of your life as you look back to how long you've walked with God and all the things that you've gone through and how many blessings he's given to you and you look at the difficult times and you see how he brought you through and what he's done of you. you those are things that are yours. No one can take those from you, you see. And God will use those things for you to encourage others. Because sometimes you'll be down and people come along and encourage you. And sometimes they'll be down and you'll come and encourage them. Because God has made us for community. The greatest deception of enemy is he wants to isolate you. God's made you for community. To be with God's people. And sometimes our families don't, don't think well that we become Christians. And sometimes people in, in the body of Christ become closer than our family members. It happens. The finisher means the developer, the perfecter of our faith. It's found only this one time. never occurs in the Greek literature. Just here. The phrase is our faith, literally the faith. The objective genitive here. Things hoped for, things promised. Our faith is an objective faith. It's objective truth. It's not subjective. It's not based on emotion. It's not based on hope souls. The Christian faith is, I know so, not I hope so. So look at there, verse 2. The believer is to have his eyes on the finish line, like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's the ultimate example of all these who died in faith. He's the primary and greatest example, the source of our faith, the hope of our faith, the one that brings our promises true by his suffering, through his suffering, and by paying that price on the cross and being raised from the dead. Now, some say the joy set before him here uh, is because when he left heaven and he could um, uh, claim that here on earth uh, and during that, Others say it's because of the joy that was said before him of how many were going to be saved. But if you look at the context, uh, I believe it's talking about the joy that he was said before him, that he was now going to be reunited with the Father. 
And you get that in the Lord, what really is the Lord's prayer in John 17, where he says, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had before the world was. Because he emptied himself of his glory, he took on flesh, came down here. The joy set before him at this point is he's going to be reunited with the Father. Because he was separated for the first time ever as he took on flesh. And that's because he loves us. Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 8 gives us that. Being in the form of God. He didn't think robbery to be equal with God. But he humbled himself. He emptied himself. And, 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 he, and he was obedient to the death of the cross. And so Jesus is the primary example and source of our hope to finish, listen, victoriously. Victoriously. He sat down at the right hand of the throne. Do you think Jesus went out there and sat down? Oh, thank God that was over. No, he sat down victoriously. All that he accomplished. All that was going to be brought to pass. And so the Hebrew Christians were to endure all things knowing the believer will be glorified to see the Father also. So these Hebrews are, are, are falling short. They're looking back. They're wanting back to the law. And he says, don't drift. Don't go back. You move forward. There, the, the repentance cannot be renewed in the Old Testament. Those animal sacrifices will not cleanse you from any sin anymore. Those IOUs have been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no more atoning power in the animal sacrifice. Do not go back to the temple. And Jesus made it final when he allowed the judgment to come upon Jerusalem in 70 AD as they destroyed the temple. There has not been one sacrifice since then. So the Jews have no atoning token for their sins to the present day. They try to do their bad deeds by their good deeds. That's not good enough. It must be the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, when you're a young gymnast, you look to work out with other people that are better than you. And so you go to different gyms and you look to people that are older or have been champions and you, you, you work with them, you spend time with them, you listen to them, you look at the way they do things and everything so you can be stretched and you can excel and everything else because if you train with people at your own level, you're never going to excel. And so the same thing in Christ. Rather than being protective towards our life, we need to step out in faith and let the Lord stretch us so that we grow in that faith and dependency upon Jesus Christ. Um, the Christian is to be um, uh, never taking his eyes off the Lord. Um, Paul the Apostle prayed that um, their eyes of understanding might be open to his knowledge, to his hope and everything in Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. That was his prayer for the Ephesians. You know, uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians is the, is the wealth in Christ. Then is the walk in Christ, then the warfare. But the wealth comes first. God never asks you to do something until he tells you how much he's done for you. God hasn't saved you to do things for him. God has saved you to tell you how much he's done for you. And once he's told you how much he's done for you, now he expects you to walk. He's equipped you for it. He tells that to the Colossians, Colossians 3.1. Jesus says, um, uh, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you in Matthew 6.33. So the kingdom is the priority because the king is on the throne. His kingdom is number one. And the Christian has to look straight ahead and far so as to not stumble or 
be detracted from the race. You know, when you're driving down the freeway, you look straight ahead and you look far. You'll drive straight. You look at your friend, you're going to crash. Look at the front end right there. You'll be weaving all over. You look straight. You look far. Your peripheral will keep you in balance. But if you get your eyes on the side, pretty soon somebody starts, and you crash. It comes on you, right? You get distracted to the side. I remember my dad one time, we were living in Montebello. He turned around and looked at a girl and he crashed. <laughs> Messed his car up. You got to be careful what you do. Paul's last words listen to me. He says, I have fought the fight, the good fight. Good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Second Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Do, are, you, are you loving his appearing? Are you looking forward to his appearing? Are you anticipating his appearance? As I look to the world and all that's going on, I used to teach about the last days. Then we now are living in the last days. <laughs> As I look at the world, seeing everything, I'm surprised Jesus hasn't come back. No man knows the day or the hour. So let no man tell you the day. But I'm looking. <laughs> the Christian always has access to the place of all privilege, all power, all authority. The throne of grace is open to us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Night or day, you can go before the throne of grace. You're going through a difficult time. You're laying there at night, tossing and turning. Don't waste time. Go to the throne of God in prayer. Don't be sitting thinking about things, letting Satan put fuel to the fire. Talk to the Lord about things. Get up and read the word of God. Don't waste time laying there three or four hours, and then you get up with a knot in your stomach and all tired. Talk to the Lord. Make good use of your time. The Christian is an overcomer. And he will receive the promise the minute he gives up his last breath. To be instantly present with the Lord. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, even though we don't know what we shall be. When we see him, we shall be exactly as he is. And everyone who has his hope purifies himself, even as he is pure. The greatest incentive for holy living is because I'm expecting Jesus Christ to come back. You remember when your parents left you alone the first time at home? And you thought they were gone for a while and you were jumping from bed to bed, boing, 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 and they forgot something, opened the door and they caught you in midair. Oh. But if you knew they were coming around the corner, you'd be looking out the window, right? Behaving. And the only thing that held up your halo was your horns. We're to be looking, expecting Jesus, always. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 3.21. The privilege that we have at Jesus Christ is beyond anything we can imagine, ladies and gentlemen. That he would do so much for us. It's amazing. The believer is to mark the proper focal point to finish the race. Jesus Christ. Notice Thirdly, here in verse 3, the believer is to make a proper assessment of his sufferings in the race. 
the believer is to mark the sufferings of Jesus. Look at verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. He endured people spitting on him, hitting him, pulling his hair, insulting him, blaspheming him, crucifying him. He's God. These Hebrews are told to consider Jesus. This again is an imperative command um, as confirmation that he did in fact finish as a victor and therefore the only one to look to and depend on. This is a stern reproof to take Jesus into account when they're feeling sorry for themselves, when they think they have it so bad, when God left his glory and he came down as a man and submitted himself even unto death. Wow. So they were to ponder thoughtfully to learn and benefit from the example of persevering endurance. This word endurance here means to take patiently, to remain under, tolerate bravely and calmly. The perfect tense suggests a completed result from Jesus' endurance on the cross. As you know, he said, it is finished. He dismissed his spirit. He had power both to lay his life down and to take it up again. This is the key word, perseverance. And the theme of verse 1 to 3 Now, the Hebrew Christians were to ponder thoughtfully and thoroughly Jesus, to endure such hostility from sinners against himself. And the word their hostility simply means to speak against, and it refers to an opposition, a contradiction. And we have incredible examples throughout the Gospels. The contrasting phrases are joined in order to let us feel the contrast. Sinners against the sinless one who is the supreme example and the model of suffering. The epitome of holiness. The one who was the sinless one should have merited the highest praise by all men and women. Who were not sinless. And they received the most terrible opposition against him. And yet, he had done absolutely nothing. Even the man on the cross, the thief, said, You and I deserve this, but this man does nothing to miss. And so all the mockery, the insults, the blasphemies, these Hebrews should have been ashamed and embarrassed over their complaining if they kept their eyes on Jesus. That would never happen. And notice the believer is to mark the comparison of Jesus to his own sufferings. Let us, let you become weary in discouraging your souls. See, this is what the enemy would like. This is what our flesh always does. It discourages. It makes you despondent. The careful observation of what Jesus endured through suffering on the cross will humble the believer in complaining. And receive hope and strength. The careful assessment is in order that they not become weary in the race. He says, lest you become weary. 
If you don't have that focal point, if you don't have that proper perspective, and you have your eyes on all these distractions, all the things that go on, though as they may be as real as anything else, you have to deal with them through the wisdom of God, through the strength of God, while keeping your eyes on the Lord. You, this, is, this is the key to the race. You ready for it? You fix things while you're running. You never sit down to fix things. You sit down to fix things. It's easier to hit an object that's standing still. You ever go shooting? A standing target is easy to hit. A moving target's a lot harder. Satan loves Christians to sit. <laughs> you keep running. You fix things while you're running. You never sit still. You run the race. Jesus is the perfect example. This careful assessment is in order that they again not become weary unless you become discouraged. Once you get weak, you become discouraged, despondent. The world has a word for it. Clinical depression. <laughs> and they get you worked up on meds. They can get you on them, but they can't get you off of them. You really didn't have a problem at first, but now you do. You need to get your eyes on Jesus if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you need Jesus to take care of your life. The word discouraged means to have one's strength relaxed and to be despondent in one's soul. The tense is the error is aggressive, meaning get to the point of tiredness by relaxing in their souls. The imagery is of a race and runner letting himself get tired of the effort and thus quitting. He just gives up. He gets discouraged. He gets weary. Again, as a gymnast, you're very aware of the sacrifice others have made as they um, persevere. This helps you to do the very thing. You absorb the injuries. Your hands tear. You fall, you tear ligaments, whatever. No big deal. You get up and you do it. Because you're looking for that crown. You're working on that endurance. You know that it's worthwhile. You're not shooting for second or third place. You want first place. So the injury and the pain is insignificant at that time. Now, if I did that for a corruptible crown, and I did, I competed with broken hands. I wanted that crown. Then why should not I run with a broken foot? The race that God has paid before me. One's a corruptible crown, the other one incorruptible. My medals, all my trophies, they're up in the attic somewhere. <laughs> the ones in heaven, they're never going to wear away. Jesus is our ultimate example. Listen to Isaiah. Behold, my servant shall dwell 
shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his vision was so marred that more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Isaiah 52, 13 through 14. In other words, Jesus was so disfigured, he was not recognized as a man. Remember in the gospel it says, behold the man, Pilate said. They couldn't recognize him as a man. That's how beat up he was. That's how disfigured he was. And so for this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if you, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, having us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins on his body, on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. First Peter two nineteen through 24 Wow. Amazing. I don't know how long you've walked with God, but you know exactly how abundant you've lived since you've come to Christ. And you compare your life to Christ that you've lived and what it was before, hands down, Christ wins. And yet, we really didn't do anything for that, but just trusted Christ for it. What a difference it's made. And so... Once again, the important thing is to keep our eyes on the Lord. It's a race. It's a long race. It's not a sprint. But he is sufficient to enable us. Jesus speaks on being a servant. He says, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Luke seventeen ten. Wow. Now, see, if a pastor would say that, and it wasn't the scripture, we'd get offended. But Jesus says this. So we have to take it for what it says. We are unprofitable servants. We're saved by grace through faith, and he wants to bless us and direct us. But do we deserve heaven? Absolutely not. It's just his grace and his love. That's why he died. You might be here tonight and not know Jesus Christ. Then you need to understand that you need to repent of your sins to be a believer. To make proper assessments of not losing heart in the race that you will enter and look into Jesus. And so here in this text, if you follow these three things that he gave, you're going to have living hope, a hope that endures. Because it's going to be based on what Jesus did for you on the cross. Not on something you deserve. Not something that you have coming. Not something you're entitled to. If you're of the entitlement mentality, you're entitled to one thing. Hell. That's it. When you die. But if you're saved and you repent of your sins, then by God's grace, you get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. Not because we deserve it, but because he loved us so that he died 
and we could believe what he did for us was effective and it guarantees my sins to be forgiven and guarantees that he gives to me eternal life. And if I put my trust in him, he will do exactly that. And so some of you perhaps are not born again. This is your decision. The end of the year is tomorrow. The end of your life could be tonight. And you can enter a new life in Christ Jesus. When you're a new creature, all things pass away, everything becomes new. He cleanses you from your sins. He gives you eternal life. He gives you a new mind, a new heart, a new nature to be able to say yes to the Lord and no to sin. Never perfect, never sinless, but your life will be completely different. But that's a choice that you alone can make, no one can make for you. It's called repentance. As you acknowledge your sinfulness... In your need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your grace and love and your goodness. And Lord, we pray that even now you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would speak to them. Lord, they would call upon your name and turn from their sin and you would just forgive them. Lord, they would just be born again and experience your grace and your love over them, Lord. As you're praying, If you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or maybe you're over the internet, then you need to make that decision tonight. You don't have to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you believe that he is God who became man and became literal sin for you and paid that price on the cross, and rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, and that He alone is the only mediator, the only name, and the only way to heaven, then you can call on His name right now and know beyond any doubt that He'll forgive you of everything that's ever taken place and give to you eternal life. It's called repentance. This is your prayer to the Lord. Not to us, but to the Lord Jesus. If you want to repent of your sins, this is your prayer. You can repeat it right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.